Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reese-Mandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And we're really thrilled to welcome back this week for a very quick repeat appearance, uh, Professor Andrew Bottomley from SUNY Anianta. Welcome, Andrew. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. And one of the reasons why I wanted Andrew uh, to, to come back with us is because we're going to dig back into the history of internet radio, and we're really excited to welcome our special guest, Carl Malamud, who is early trailblazer, the trailblazer for audio on the internet. Currently, he is the president and founder of Public Resource. But uh, Carl, you uh, you did a lot of great work to, to first bring audio onto the internet, and we're really thrilled you could join us. Thank you for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Paul, Eric. I really appreciate this. So, you know, you're credited with creating what is largely considered the first internet radio talk show. It was called Geek of the Week. And, and, and it goes, you started that, was it was in 1993, is that correct? Yeah, we went on the air uh, actually on April 1 of 1993. We almost didn't go on the air and wanted to say everybody, hey, you know, it was a joke, but um, we decided to go ahead anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I can say that I know, I, I can think back to 1993 myself, because that was the year I first saw the World Wide Web, but not until the fall. I never saw the internet prior to April 1 of 1993, I think. And, and so it's sort of an amazing thing to think that you were already doing audio can you take us back to this time, you know, what, wh how did this idea germinate one that you thought you could put audio on the internet in the first place? Because it's hard for us to think now that we're in such a multimedia environment, but people principally looked at it as a text medium or a data medium and, and, and not really suitable for, for audio or video. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my browser at that time was a text only Right affair, I, like pictures. If they were on websites, were represented by, uh, you know, code words that told me that the the name of that particular picture, like that was the internet. So, how did that idea germinate that you would that you would put audio online? Well, I was um, I, I had written a number of professional reference books about computer networks, and uh, was teaching seminars and and you know writing for the trade press. But I was also participating in the Internet Engineering Task Force, which gets together three times a year, uh, hashes out the Internet protocols. And and in those days, you know, 1991, 1992, it was very active. They they were putting together email protocols, um, and there were some people doing video streaming and audio streaming and they were actually uh, allowing remote participation in the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force meetings. Um, and so they would hook it up so that they, they would have meeting rooms and people would be in the meeting rooms, but someone else could be like in Australia and they could be listening and they could ask a question. And that was somewhat revolutionary. And because I was kind of a hands-on guy, I, I kind of helped you know, on setup when it came to the, the computers for every IETF meeting and got to know some of the people like Van Jacobson and Steve Deering and others that had actually invented the protocols that were used to stream audio and video. And, and those, by the way, are the same protocols that we're using today, um, which is pretty amazing because they, they actually got it right. Um, and as I was attending these meetings and watching people participate remotely, um, I also had this feeling that I wanted to get my hands much dirtier because I'd been writing books and teaching seminars, but what, what I wasn't doing was actually like, you know, doing stuff like 
on the net. And I wanted to do something and I thought about it and it was like, you know, what the hell? Why, why not just start a radio program? And, you know, the easy thing to do would be interview my peers in the ITF and hence the, the term geek of the week. And so I went and asked people like Vince Cerf and, um, you know, Stephen Wolf, who was the National Science Foundation guy running the NSF net, the, the backbone of the net at the time. And I said, well, what do you think? Do a little radio program. And they were like, go for it. Carl, did yeah. you have a background in radio? Um, I actually sort of did. Uh, I graduated from the Interlochen Arts Academy, and my senior year I was there. I had a minor in radio broadcasting, so I, I, I worked at the student radio station. But, you know, I, I was very much an amateur. Um, and when I decided to, like, start audio on the net, it was, it was hard because I really didn't know the technology of radio. Um, and even like audio on a computer, you had to go buy a sound card and install it in your computer and then download the device driver and get it up and running. It wasn't uh, just so built in back then, right? It wasn't, oh, it was no, not all no, microphone no. with every computer like we, we experience now. No, you had to configure it to do that. It was actually fairly like hard mm -hmm. uh, particularly on these fancy like sun workstations and things <laughs> like that you, you you had to i mean you really had to like download a device driver and in our case we were doing things like so i bought an early dat deck um dat and you uh, mean what uh, you're talking about is digital audio tape is what yeah, you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, digital audio tape was the latest great thing. It was it yeah. was the modern wave of the future. And so we decided to do that. And there was technology for recording audio like on some workstations, but it was only eight kilohertz. It was it was low resolution. And in order to record the 48 kilohertz that a DAT deck does, which is, you know, professional CD quality, quality yeah, resolution, yeah. you bet, uh, someone had to write us a device driver. The, that actually was able to handle so, that. So that, someone had to code a custom yeah. computer program for all intents and purposes to to take this audio that you were recording on your digital audio tape. Yeah, it was non-trivial. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it, it wasn't that hard. I mean, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was mostly a hack. I mean, I, I'm credited with inventing radio, but, but I think invention is the wrong word. Uh, it was a hack. It was like the internet is ready to do this. Um, and, and my thought was that, you know, audio was really big. It was like 30 megabytes for a half hour of audio. And in those days, that was a big deal. Um, and, but my thought was you could do this and, you know, you probably couldn't do it real time, although we were doing real time, we, we were doing live streaming, but for your average user and by average user, I mean, a systems administrator in Australia or in a national research lab, uh, for them, they had to download it. And so the idea was we would put these AU files, these 30 megabyte half hour interviews up on an FTP server and people would download them. And when the download was done, you know, it might take 12 hours. Um, you could listen, you could listen to your radio program <laughs> and, and, you know, your audience at the time, I mean, certainly the audience that you're, you're, you're speaking to explicitly are computer geeks, right? People who are deeply into the technology of the internet in 1993, but the folks are generally speaking, I mean, they, they're not at home, right. On broadband connections where they largely in offices at universities or at government agencies, on, you know, the places that actually had these sort of direct internet connections, you know, do you have a, I mean, and, and where were you producing from? Where did you, how did you connect to the internet? So I was, um, I started in my home in Alexandria, Virginia, and I had a reasonable internet line, but you know, we we're talking dial up, uh, but you know, my users, um, so in those days, the internet wasn't that big, 
But, you know, all the major universities had reasonably good Internet access. Um, all the big government labs had it. And I thought my audience was, you know, the geek of the week crowd. Um, but when when I started this, uh, we kind of got lucky in that the New York Times put us on their front page, you know, move over Ted Turner. Um, and it turned out our audience wasn't just that. So uh, what I did is I got a studio in the National Press Building. Um, I rented one. Um, I convinced WorldCom, which was doing the the fiber in the D.C. area. It was, a it was very one of the big telecoms time. at the time. Yeah. 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 And I went to them and said, hey, I started a radio station. Look, front page New York Times. What do you think? And um, I understand you're laying fiber and you're up the street a few blocks from me. And they said, well, you know, we can run the trucks down a few more blocks. Let's get the permits. And they ran it up 10 stories into the National Press Building. Um, and they wired my, my office at 10 megabits per second, which was like really fast for those days. Mm -hmm. And so I walked up two more floors to the National Press Building and I said, you know, to the National Press Club. And I said, hey, you know, I'd like to broadcast your your luncheon addresses and as part of that um i can give you free internet to the to for the club and i can even build you a website um and so we ran the fiber up two more stories and uh they had three broadcast booths um one of them had national public radio in them uh one of them was like for tv and the third was empty and i said well you know while i'm here do you mind if i have one of your broadcast booths and so we, we threw another dat deck up in, in that booth. Uh, we ran the audio on down to our studio. And so we very quickly started doing um, National Press Club luncheons. Uh, we went to Harper Audio. Um, and said, and hey, wait, you Carl, Carl, you said doing. And I just want to emphasize for the audience that by doing, you mean uh, broadcasting these meetings live on the Internet over audio for the first time ever. For five months, we we uh, recorded everything, got it ready to go, and then put it on the FTP server. So, yeah. and, so, and then by December, though, by December of 93, we were live streaming them. Wow. So so in this case, doing was the first time-shifted internet radio the program. The first podcast. Yeah, the first podcast. <laughs> although the word podcast uh, implies a few for things that we're not going to 12 or 13 into. years, yes, but, you know. Yeah, Dave Weiner doesn't like it when I use the word podcasting because podcasting technically is is an MPEG-3 file with an RSS feed. Right. And we weren't doing that, but, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. So a uh, radio program, whatever that you want to call it, really doesn't matter to me. And like I said, it's not an invention. It was a hack. So, um, but, but it worked, and it was a general audience. So with Harper Collins, for example, we got rights to uh, do low-res resolution audio transmission on the internet of their cassette tapes. Um, so they had T.S. Eliot reading The Wasteland. They had Robert Frost reading his own words. They, they had uh, J.R. Tolkien reading his own words. Um, and so I cut this deal and they were like, ah, oh, what do we have to lose? Well, res, <laughs> we're, we're not going to lose any money. And they sent me a hundred cassette tapes. And so we bought a cassette tape you know, deck and recorded all that to disc and uh, I, I put a nice little intro on the beginning of each one and, and put those on the net. Uh, we joined the public radio satellite system. So I put a satellite dish on the roof of the National Press Building and I got syndication rights for like Tech Nation, for example. Um, uh, Gunn was was just online then and was was very interested in the net. And she said, sure, you have rights to rebroadcast my program. Um, so we had a pretty varied amount of like syndication as well as our original programming. Um, and that was very quick. It was within six months. We were doing a dozen different programs. Wow. Uh, 
that's quite a spool up. I, I have to ask, how did you come up with money to fund this? It wasn't free, was it? <laughs> oh, so it was fairly low budget. I didn't have a lot of staff. It was me and a, my, my friend Marty Lucas was the producer. Um, I had a full-time sysadmin um, working for me. Uh, so I got some money from Tim O'Reilly at O'Reilly Media. I went to Sun Microsystems and said, hey, how would you like to you know sponsor a radio program? Um, and just I to put, sort of set, set it up I, I, here, I, I, I want to I wanna lay some, you know, just uh, I'm going to stop you just for a second because Tim O'Reilly is a publisher of, of O'Reilly Books, which which are a series, has been one of the premier publishers really of technical books, especially for people who, who are programmers or do system administration. Right. Animals right. on the cover. With animals on the cover, so that's something which you know not a lot, not everyone in the audience is probably aware of, um, and 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 as well, you know, Sun Microsystems is a name that, that, that no longer people know because they're not really in business, but at the time we're making uh, these work very powerful workstation computers uh, that sort of help people bridge that gap from working on big mainframes in the '70s and '80s down to working on personal computers, right in in the in the '90s and 2000s. Um, yeah, and I I had installed a lot of Sun workstations. So I, I, I started my career at the Federal Reserve Board. I was at Indiana University, then I went to the Federal Reserve Board and, and helped kind of, you know, change the way they did computing. I did a lot of consulting. So I knew the folks at Sun. And, you know, my friend Eric Schmidt was actually the guy that was running the the division that did computer networking. And why would people time. know who Eric Schmidt is now? <laughs> uh, well, he's at a little company called Google, yeah. although um, he's, he seems to have successfully, like, you know, he got parole and I don't think he's, he's actively involved there. But <laughs> Um, Helped, but, yeah, but, it was yeah. initial leader and founder. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Sun. Uh, the big thing I got out of Sun was they gave me all the hardware that I could swallow. So they, they, and and those were expensive workstations in those days. So they, they gave me computers. Uh, IBM was a sponsor. Uh, you know, Tim O'Reilly at O'Reilly Media was. Uh, and then I put all the money I had into it. I, I, I you know, I. I took all my savings and I, I dumped it into this. Oh, wow. It just seemed like, like an opportunity and, and was worth doing. You know, um, you say it's an opportunity it was worth doing and you've got these folks, you know, like O'Reilly Media, Sun Microsystems willing to contribute to it. Um, you know, it sounds very much like a startup. My question is, you thought it was worth doing to put in your savings. What did you see a profit potential? <laughs> what, what, what did you see? Or did you see just simply it was too much of a good idea to, to let pass and the sust the ability to sustain it would would come right. and, uh, and again to let listeners know who just are might be joining us this idea that's too good to let pass is uh the idea of putting audio on the internet that's time shifted in 1993 or so 1994 so when i started this it wasn't a company it was a project right mm -hmm. it was it was it was something i was doing and i i was put money into it, um, but it was me, sole proprietorship and all that. Um, so we made front page of the New York Times uh, above the fold. I, I actually knew the article was going to run. And so I went to the coffee shop that day and I got my New York Times and, you know, I, I, I flipped it to, to the bottom below the fold <laughs> and said, well, no, no, the article isn't there. I guess we didn't make it today because it had been a couple of weeks. Um, and so I was reading the paper, reading the paper. And I finally said, OK, what the hell? We're not in here today. Um, and so I flipped the paper back over to the above the fold and there was the article. So and then I got home and there must have been 500 phone calls. Um, it was nuts. And one of the calls was a guy named Nicholas Negroponte um, who ran the MIT Media Lab. And he goes, Carl, this is amazing. This is totally amazing. Send me your business plan. 
And I was like, Nick, uh, well, thank you so much. I don't know if we have a business plan. And so I thought about it and I called him back the next day and I said, you know, Nick, I thought about this. I decided to make this a, a nonprofit. Um, and he was disgusted with me. He, he thought this was like a real opportunity that I was letting go. Uh, Eric Schmidt was the same way. He was quoted in the New York Times saying he just didn't understand why I did that. I made it a nonprofit for a couple of reasons. I was very impressed by C-SPAN and National Public Radio and, and that world. Um, it seemed to me that we were early. Um, and if we were going to be a business, we'd have to you know, figure out how to monetize it in a business model. And it seemed to me that this medium was brand new and there was a lot of opportunity to move it in different directions. And as a nonprofit, you could do that more effectively. Hmm. As a nonprofit, it was much easier for me to go to national public radio and say, let me join you know, your satellite system. It meant that when I went to the United States Congress and said, please give me congressional press credentials, um, I was able to get those. And it was actually the first and only new media credentials they, they gave. And then for the next 10 years, they didn't give any more. They were like, no, 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 no. You're not really real, real media if you're on the internet. But I had mine and that meant I had free access to the Capitol. We were able to put a tie line, which was a dedicated audio line into the basement of the Capitol. And so by January 94, we were doing live streaming of the floor of the House and the floor of the Senate, um, including uh, with a guy named Deb Roy, who's now a, a senior professor at the Media Lab. He was an intern at the time. He did voice recognition. So he was able to couple wow. the congressional record to the audio. So you, we had a search engine and, and you could say, I, I want to hear all members of Congress from Minnesota speaking about the budget. And then it would pull up, pull up the audio and you could actually hear it. But do we have that now? Why? Why was this? Why was this easy to do in 1994, and we don't have it in 2020? Oh, I don't know. It it, it it's All doable right. now. Uh, we we actually demoed it to several senators and and you know offered to give our code to them, but but that didn't happen. So ran it for you know a year or two, and and you know Deb ended up like being a, a you know senior media lab professor. Uh, he was chief data scientist at Twitter. Uh, he's just you know a real real rocket scientist when it comes to 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 a, a whole bunch of things. But in those days, it was audio recognition was was the thing he was doing. If we go back then to 1994, Carl Malamud, um, most people are not connected to the internet at home, right? Some people are. Uh, I, I was because I was a graduate student uh, at the University of Illinois at the time, and that was something that I got as one of, as as part of being there. Though you know, certainly connected with with better access on campus. But, you know, home access was just starting to come about for the average person. Um, there's no such thing as Wi-Fi, no such thing as, broad, as mobile broadband. You know, cell phones are just starting to exist. But Most people data. aren't on laptops. Most people They're are on desktops. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and here you are uh, streaming audio, uh, you know, both doing live streams and then, of course, archiving audio for people to get at later times. Um, I mean, how how big was it by, say, January of 1994 when you've got, you know, House and Senate floor action going out? Do you have any sense for like how big how big the audience was or or who was tuning in? Yeah, uh, Geek of the Week episodes were getting hundreds to thousands of, of people listening to them, which we thought was big. Um, so the, the Internet was small, but, but it wasn't that small. It's smaller than today. And, you know, we, we kind of thought it was um, hubris to, to say, oh, gee, everybody on the planet's going to be connected. And we're not even there yet. Right. 
right? Um, it's not everybody yet. Uh, but in those days, it was, you know, every college student pretty much in the major universities had access. And, you know, a lot of people in big corporations did. And so it was, um, you know, our audience was, you know, in the tens to, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands. Uh, we did some websites in 95 and I did the Internet World's Fair in 96. Um, and in 96, we had five million unique visitors uh visit the Internet World's Fair site. Um, and, you know, it was like 80 different countries um, were, were visiting. So it, it, it was significant, at least by our standards. Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If I could jump in, Carl, just yeah. to ask you a little bit about the kind of the mission that really was, was driving you here. Because, I mean, as you, as you point out, I mean, you decided to do this as a nonprofit. Um, and a lot of these projects you're involved with, like, you know, around that time, like the Congressional Memory Project, I mean, uh, and of course, your career now with, you know, publicresearch.org, um, I mean, you're very much, you're an advocate. I mean, that's, I think, the thing that really drives you more than some desire to, uh, you know, make a lot of money or whatever that, you know, we th often think of when we think of, you know, uh, technology and particularly Internet technology. Um, but at this time, I mean, the choice to put radio on the Internet and your ability to convince all of these big um, firms like, you know, Sun to, to back you and, and O'Reilly to back you was really because, I mean, you were you were one someone who was really quite vocal about wanting to sort of demonstrate what the what the Internet could do and also not just what the Internet could do as a technology, but what it could do as a social and even a political tool. Right. Well, and it was it was more than just advocacy. It was doing it for real. And I think that's the reason people like Eric at Sun and others, because it wasn't just a demo. This wasn't a, a high, you know, welcome to the media lab. Let me show you the future of, you know, collaborative filtering thing. And although some of that technology actually really like, you know, went very, very far. Um, they were an amazing incubator for uh, but but I was trying to do projects that were real that could force change, uh, that could do so in a way that would be long lasting. And so putting the National Press Club online wasn't about, you know, getting rights to the press club and being their exclusive voice. It was teaching them to own and operate their own website, which they did. And in fact, I, I gave them press.org. I, I had press.org as one of my domain names. And I, <laughs> I ended up just saying, here, uh, here's your domain name. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but, but the idea was that, that by, by, Doing it for real, you can bring millions of people into a new service and you can use that leverage as a way to get the large institutions, the governments, the corporations um, to change their ways. And so it's a way of, of doing long lasting social change and not in the sense of, hi, I'm at a think tank. Here's a here's a white paper. But in the sense of this is for real. It's time for you to act. And when you say change their ways, Carl, I'm assuming you mean like um, uh, opening up so that information is more accessible to more people instead of like certain certain elites that had access, had always had access to like, um, uh, I don't know, like government meetings, for instance. Yeah, that's part. Uh, openness is certainly part of it. But, but a lot of it, particularly when I work with government, um, I try to be very clear with them that this is partly about openness, but, but this isn't sunlight is the best disinfection. We're doing this to hold your feet to the fire. It's more of this is a better way of doing things that will make you more effective. And, and one of the ways you do that is to be open. Uh, but a lot of this is about using the computers and the networks more effectively to carry out your mission. Uh, so the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, it was partly uh, about, you know, making sure anyone could read the annual 
annual report of IBM and, you know, make sure they weren't getting away with anything. But it was mostly about making our financial markets more efficient and transparent and more effective. And that's how I sold it to the chairman of the SEC. It was it wasn't the sunlight argument. It was that, you know, you're going to be able to do your job more effectively this way. And you know what? I'm getting a million users a day using these SEC reports and it doesn't cost that much money. So you can do this. Um, This is not a big adventuresome leap on your part. Like if I could grab a, a, a an example of our time, you can let me know if it's too far fetched. Like the idea that like health data during the pandemic, if it was more widely available, so that all sorts of people could download the data, uh, more scientists all across the world might be able to um, pick apart that information and find more solutions that would um, help us today. Well, so if journal articles, uh, which the majority are behind a paywall, were more broadly available, people could do text and data mining and come up with significant scientific results. So it's not just the government data, right, about reports that has to be more transparent. It's the data as a whole. In fact, that's one of the areas we're heavily involved in right now is the idea that text and data mining on scientific journal articles is something anybody ought to be able to do. And you don't need permission from the journal publishers to do that. That's actually a a somewhat controversial um, (laughs) uh, point of view. Yeah, it's amazing to use the word data mining and it gets my hackles up because it's a it's a bad word. The you know, the trillionaires use data mining to control us as opposed to the notion that that data mining is just a technique that could help all of us understand the world. Um, If data mining was more was easier to access for all people. Yeah. To bring this back around to radio, though, maybe. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Uh, to Carl, but I mean, there were quite a few projects that were involved in around the same time as uh, you know, the internet, internet multicasting service and internet talk radio that were text projects, too. Um, but with this, with Geek of the Week, with internet talk radio with, as a channel, you know, you chose radio. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, you know, what the appeal was of radio or audio um, and, you know, if there's anything that you think of as radio as a medium um, that you really that really, I think, matches with some of these principles that you're describing here. Well, so I, I was attracted to to radio, a longtime national public radio listener. Uh, the reason I did audio is because video was just too damn hard to do. It was too big. It was hard to edit. I mean, even editing audio um was not easy. I, I, you know, I ended up buying a DigiDesign board and, and, you know, a bunch of Mackie boards and having to learn all those. And, you know, thank God Marty Lucas knew, knew a lot of this stuff already. Uh, but it was a real learning experience. Video was like significantly harder. And about 2004, I bought my first high def cameras and started working with those. And that was really hard. Um, and it's still hard. I'm, I'm still learning video. Uh, we're, we're deep in, in that right now as, as, part of my my work with public resource but in 93 it was forget about it we were doing video on the net we were doing live streaming um, but it was live streaming four frames per second right which is like I, I mean it's very much stop motion 
video and the the resolution was like you know 320 by 240 so it, it was you know on, on your current computer screen it, it's that you know that's kind of what an icon is um little bitty you know images very stop frame it, it just wasn't doable but the insight on audio was that you could do eight kilohertz audio which again is not very good by today's standards but it was good enough uh so eight kilohertz um is like am radio Right. Um, and that was kind of the insight was you could do AM radio on the Internet today. Um, so let, let, let's get started. Uh, but but video was just I, I just it, it would have been too hard. You know, at that time, then as well, you know, and this is something we talked with. We've talked with Andrew about a couple of times, you know, 1993, 1994, when you're putting up Geek of the Week, you're, you're doing these live stream of House and Senate. Uh, proceedings. You've got the National Press Club luncheons being broadcast on the internet. Um, there's not a lot of conventional radio, and it sounds like not a lot of conventional radio broadcast radio, aside from what you were helping with, Carl, right? Because you you were um, at least putting uh, audio for some forward-looking NPR shows, and and, we, and and the thing that people often forget about NPR is, of course, it's, it's not a monolith. Uh, you know, stations are independent. There's There are programs that are independently produced that are just distributed by NPR over their satellite system, which you had access to. Um, but, but NPR itself, National Public Radio, which does produce, you know, the big national programs like... All Things uh, Considered. All Things Considered, Morning Edition, um, was not yet on the internet. And, and my understanding is you... You had you 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 were talking with them back then in 1994-ish. Yeah, so I mean, I had been on Science Friday and I was on Tech Nation a few times, and I think All Things Considered might have covered us when when we hit the New York Times. And um, I uh, my lawyer was the former general counsel of National Public Radio, so he had some contacts in that world. But no, they weren't heavily involved. They were right down the street. I was in Washington D.C. and they had their brand new headquarters on Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, so I went in a few times and and visited. But no, I I. I I didn't know, you know, they didn't have a new media group and they didn't have a, you know, what's the future of NPR. They might have had a group doing that, but they certainly weren't talking to me. And uh, on Radio Survivor, like a few episodes ago, we had Andrew Bottomley on, who's today is um, acting as a as a co-host of the program, uh, asking Carl Malmood questions today. And we we sort of got um, we sort of started speculating about whether or not National Public Radio in the 90s um was hostile to being on the internet or indifferent to being on the internet? Um, why did it take them, you know, in 1994, it might've been early, but in the year 2000, they were still, um, behind the curve, right? They weren't, they weren't leading the way on the internet. Uh, if my memory serves me, if, if the history is right. So do you have any information about that? Do, do you know if anyone was, was excited for NPR to be on the internet or if anyone was hostile to the notion? Oh, yeah, there were a lot of individuals that were very forward-looking. There's some really smart hosts and some really good techs that work at NPR. And, you know, they knew what was going on. But management was going through their periodic, you know, new president just joined. We have a new strategic direction. We're, um, and they, they weren't indifferent. They were more like ignorant. They just didn't, weren't following it. So I mean, their techs knew what was going on, but the managers were in the radio world and it, it was hard to get their attention. I tried, I tried, but, but I, I didn't have any luck. Um, hmm. And so 
looking again at 1994 in, in that sort of pivotal early internet period, um, did you make contact with other traditional, you know, terrestrial broadcasters or were you really more focused on figuring out what other types of audio content that really wasn't being broadcast in any sort of way onto, onto the internet? So NBC got really like excited with my internet world's fair. This is like 95 when I was doing that. And they said, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we, we want to be a sponsor. And I speaking to some fancy executive vice president and we signed an agreement and then they stiffed me. They never paid the money that, that was sponsorship. <laughs> and um, I, it was a hundred grand. I mean, it was, you know, real money, that, uh, uh, but they, they just ended up not paying. You know, and what the, is this, the, the, you know, the internet world fair, uh, I, I don't think I'd heard of this before. So you're saying in 1995, you, you threw the Internet World Fair. What, what, what was that? 96. 96. 96. So 95, we organized it. So the idea was, you know, let's do I, I mean, I was like enamored of World's Fairs, and you know, from the late 1800s and the 1900s. And I was having lunch one day with Vint Cerf, the father of the Internet. And I said, yeah, Vint, we should do a World's Fair. And he was like, go for it. This would be great. And he was at MCI. And so I talked to a bunch of friends around the world and and we organized a World's Fair that ran for all of 1996. Um, we had 70 countries participating. And the question is, what does a World's Fair look like on the Internet? And, you know, we wanted to make it not just the net. And so we, we had a very fancy, you know, website. Um, but we we also had a whole bunch of events in the real world. So Todd Macover, for example, um, MIT Media Lab, uh, very famous opera composer. Um, that's how I got to know the Media Lab better is because Todd called me up after he read about the World's Fair in the New York Times and said, I want to be part of this. And he had a new opera that was like crowdsourcing music from the internet, like it would be part of the opera. And he had Lincoln Center was going to be his debut. And so I worked with Todd and we got Lincoln Center online and, you know, did live streaming of the Brain Opera. We had people in Japan doing all sorts of street fairs. A guy named Joey Ito, uh, who was, uh, again, at the Media Lab as their director, um, ran a, a very fancy street fair there. Uh, Taiwan was totally into it. Um, so Taiwan and Tibet really liked the World's Fair because early on I decided I, I was not the guy that was going to decide who, who could be a country because we had country pavilions. And so Taiwan came in and said, we want to do a country pavilion. I was like, go for it. Um, uh, we had actual formal protests from China. They're saying you cannot possibly allow Taiwan to be a country. Uh, I said, look, you want to do a pavilion, do a pavilion, but I, I'm not going to, you know, like, so Taiwan was so like happy with this. They put internet viewing pavilions in like every train station in mm. Taiwan, including the central train station, huge banners all over the place. And they had a dozen, you know, people wearing fancy, you know, World's Fair uniforms. And as people were going to catch their train, they would be, hello, would you like to see the Internet? Um, so it, it was really kind of fun. I, I traveled. I did six um, round the world trips in 95 to organize it and six round the world trips in 96. To, you know, I was meeting government ministers. We wow. got a letter, wow. letter. Yeah. Carl Malmud, uh, can you tell us about any special audio experiments at that Internet World's Fair in 1996? Was radio, uh, was time shifted audio a part of a part of the fair? Oh, it sort of was in the sense of like the brain opera, like, you know, brought in audio from like, you know, people could actually compose um, audio on, on Java apps that ran on your browser and that became part of the opera in Lincoln Center. But no, radio yeah. w w was not like a 
key component. This was not a radio thing. It was a World's Fair thing. Um, but, you know, these metaphors kind of morph. I, I mean, you know, Internet radio wasn't really radio. It was something new. Um, and our World's Fair was something new. And we are speaking with Carl Malamud. He is uh, currently president and founder of Public Resource. The reason we're talking with him here on Radio Survivor is that he was responsible for what is often credited as the, the first internet radio talk show called Geek of the Week and some trailblazing efforts in putting audio both live and on demand on the internet back in, in the early 90s, starting around uh, 1993. This is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reesmandel. I'm here with Eric Klein, and we're also joined Hello. by our special co-host, uh, Professor Andrew Bottomley, hi, and uh, you know we're really digging into this into this into this prehistory because you know it's it's so easy for this stuff to get lost, and as well that you know because we've the internet has taken over our lives or become part of our lives in ways that that maybe some predicted in 1993. Uh, but what, but at the time, what it was almost science fiction, right? Uh, right? Well, I'm certainly excited to talk to Carl today about the notion that that all of the hacks that he was doing with audio on the internet um, was more about the joy of building something new and de mm -hmm. and demonstrating the technology rather than trying to uh, patent stuff and build the, build a new company that would take over the world. Um, it's the internet of my youth that now I feel. Um, like, uh, now I regret the nostalgia because of how so many gigantic internet companies seem to be, um, you know, uh, n not acting in, in the public's best interest. And, and here was a time when, when building something online, um, was for everybody and, yeah. and, aud and that, that's a very radio survivor, uh, feeling <laughs> that, to, you know, that, that radio is here for all of us to be using, to communicate with one another. And that, you know, back in the nineties, this was still. So it's still possible. Yeah, I want to touch on the podcasting thing because, you know, Geek of the Week, you, you did it, you live stream, but also you put files up on the internet that people could download, right? So they could go listen on demand, uh, a fairly radical idea at the time. And during, you know, into the 20 teens, you know, uh, there was a company called Personal Audio that had a patent that they say covered podcasting, right? This was this is the one of the biggest stories of the decade, right? In, mean, in podcasting. Po in yeah. the podcast industry. Right. So, you know, they, they had a patent which they filed for, I believe, in nineteen ninety-six. And 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 originally uh their their tat their technology was they were sending cassettes of <laughs> of magazines being read, sort of er podcasts in a way, um, to people you know, in a serialized fashion, which they then amended to say they would do it on the internet. And, 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 and it, it filed this patent before the, the name podcast had, had taken root before the, the sort of fundamental technology behind what we know as podcasting took root. The, the RSS feed that, that allows you to automatically download, uh, an MP3 file enclosure. Uh, so they, they then went about in the, uh, in the late, 2000s into the 20 teens uh threatening podcasters uh most famously uh going after adam carolla um but they, i believe they also won judgments against uh, like cbs interactive uh discovery networks uh saying that that basically anyone uh, making podcasts and and having to uh you know and making money at them was going to oil owe them a royalty because they had in fact invented uh the medium and uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, fought imagine? this, 
uh, in court, uh, but ultimately took it to the, you know, ultimately won a judgment at the patent office itself, right? Which is, which is the body, which, which, with which you file patents and, and which you can also challenge a patent. And, uh, one of the pieces of evidence that they used to, to get this patent invalidated was your show geek of the week. And, and the EFF argued that the very fact that you had basically serialized audio, a weekly radio show. Prior art, right? That you had recorded and put on the internet as early as 1993, and they could demonstrate it. There was evidence to show that it existed and that there was even press coverage of it, was in effect prior art three years earlier, saying that this idea of serialized audio on the internet existed. Um, what did you think? Did, you, did the EFF talk to you when, when, when this was going down? What'd you think when you found out that that's something you did in 1993 was being used to kind of, uh, uh, help the podcast industry in some extent, not get all immediately stifled, uh, by yeah, this. no, it's so all, I, I know the EFF folks very well. They're, yeah. they're in my law firm, law firm right now. Okay. And, and, and the folks did talk to me. So it turns out that my evidence, the stuff I had done was actually thrown out by the tribunal and EFF relied on other evidence that this had happened before. Uh, but there was some technicality, but, but yeah, I, I mean, so I, I'm always very, when people say I invented, you know, the first internet radio station. I'm always very quick to say, no, I didn't invent it. It was a hack. It was it was applying technology in a way that made sense that rolled In some ways, out. would you say it was oh. like technology that was just waiting to be put together and somebody just yeah. had to po- provide some of the glue? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's all it was. It was a very stupid patent on podcasting. It's like the email patent. It's like so many of these business process and software patents. So one of the things I did at internet multicasting is I put the U.S. patent database on on the internet for the first time. Um, I actually bought all their data and put it online over the objections of the commissioner. Um, And it was my theory that the commissioner at the time, Bruce Lehman, was issuing bad patents knowingly, right? Mm -hmm. Because he made revenue based on patent filing fees and on selling Hmm. patent DVDs. Um, And I think he knew that a lot of the patents he was issuing were garbage. They they were not original. They they were not inventions. Um, And it was the beginning of a huge number of bad patents that have been since issued and are still being issued. If if you're a dot-com, one of the things you have to deal with is a patent thicket that the big companies like Apple and Samsung and IBM and the others have. And they can knock you out because they have so many patents and patent litigation is so expensive that there's just no way you can defend against these spurious claims that what you are doing somehow violates their intellectual property rights. It's it's one of the more broken parts of our current economy. It's It's not helping promote inventors. It is not promoting creativity and innovation. It's an arbitrage on stupid ideas. Um, It's a bargaining um, chip that you use to bargain with other big corporations, but it's not serving the purpose of the increase and diffusion of knowledge, which is what patents are supposed to do. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, 
you know, it's great that <laughs> this evidence could be submitted, whether it was from you or from from other sources, to uh, so that Radio Survivor here, which is a podcast in addition to being a radio show, uh, isn't subject to having to pay uh, royalties for the simple fact that we that we're right. making it and posting it online. Um, you know, because podcasting is, I would argue, you know, it, while it's certainly developed into a very robust business, uh, has been tremendous in in uh, tremendously instrumental in reviving. Uh, the popularity of voice and talk programming, audio right. programming. I mean, you say you say it's been a robust business, Paul, but I believe you even would know the data that the majority of what is being put out by humans on Earth is not monetized. Yes, yeah, is is for free <laughs> yeah. because they want to share yeah. their voice with listeners, and that um, seems very compatible with what with what you were trying trying to do at the time, Carl. And it seems like in some ways that you've dedicated uh, your your career to, and so. You know, how long did you continue to uh, work on these these internet broadcasts uh, of various sorts in audio uh, through the '90s? Uh, I ran internet multicasting through mid '96, and we just literally ran out of money. Uh, again, NBC stiffed us. Uh, it was really hard raising money for an operational nonprofit, particularly by like '96, '97. You know, companies like Netscape were beginning to happen. The you mean all my celebration, all my celebration of the world of non-commercial giving giving things away for free didn't turn out. <laughs> well, I, I, I just couldn't keep it going. And yeah. so my colleagues overseas kept the World's Fair going, um, which was nice, particularly in Japan and uh, Rob Blockchild in the Netherlands. Uh, Nick Negroponte gave me a place to land for a little while at the Media Lab to catch my breath. Um, and then I went over to Japan as a visiting professor at Keio University for mm -hmm. a little while. Um, and again, I, I wrote my book about the World's Fair and uh, MIT Press went ahead and published that. I got the Dalai Lama to write the forward which was very cool uh, even just as cool laurie anderson wrote the afterwards so um i i, I felt like i was I, I was talking to real rock stars um she was always one of my heroes anyway so <laughs> and and so internet multicast is the name of your organization and so what you were doing so you, part of your what you were producing was the world's fair the internet world's fair uh you were producing these various broad uh, multicasts or broadcasts on the internet was there anything else you were involved in yeah, we put the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. Patent right. Office okay. on the Internet and then shoved the databases back down their throat and made them do it, uh, <laughs> which was very successful. Uh, my friend Marshall Rose and I um, came up with a system called the Phone Company, which allowed you to send free faxes to anyone using email. Hmm. Um, it was the first use of the Internet to do bypass, the idea that faxes and phone calls would go over the Internet instead of over traditional telephone lines. So it was somewhat controversial um, because, in theory, the Federal Communications Commission regulated that stuff. But uh, we ended up with, with service in dozens and dozens of countries. It, it was fun. Uh, a couple of the components of that have, have uh, survived in modern voice over the Internet protocol. So a, a little bit of what we did there. And it was mostly the work that Marshall did um, that, that made that happen. So when you when you think back to that time, uh, you know, and and you know, you've had quite a bit of time in between. Uh, what do you see? How do you how do you view the legacy of of those of those early days? Certainly, by 1996, uh, your organization was not the only one um, either doing live or even archived audio on the internet. It, things had started to uh, 
to, to become a little bit more common. Some radio stations had joined uh, the fray, as had as did uh, you know pure play internet only broadcasters. But yeah, re- re- remember Paul Jones put radio stations up in like ninety three, ninety four. So that that had been happening. Rob Glazer came along with Real Audio, and in fact, my my current lawyer is David Halperin, a uh, very well known Washington guy. He was a speechwriter for Bill Clinton, but little known fact, he was a co founder of Real Audio with Rob Glazer, um, because when Rob first started Real Audio, he thought it would be a progressive radio station on the internet. Progressive, mm. you know, was the name of his company. Yeah, and, and you mean. Like politically progressive, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Now that didn't fly. There was no money for that, and so he ended <laughs> up doing doing the streaming thing. Um. <laughs> Interesting. Hey, Carl, I'd like uh, as we round out the, today's radio program and maybe uh, head off into the podcast. Uh, I'd love to return to Andrew's question from a, from half half the show ago, where you had this choice uh, in the in the nineteen ninety four time uh, where where you. It, where, where you chose audio, where you chose to make radio with, with the internet. And um, you, your answer to Andrew was like, well, audio is easier than video, video is even harder. But um, I wonder if you could answer the question again about what did you gain by, um, by recording radio shows and giving them out on the internet as opposed to, uh, you know, a newsletter, writing stuff down. Why was it important to talk to people and record Oh, there were a lot of like newsletters out there and, you know, that wouldn't have been like very inventive. In fact, that was a big business in those days. Uh, A lot of people selling newsletters and stuff. Nobody was doing audio on the net. Um, And I always look for things that, that, you know, if if other people are doing it, then they should go ahead and do it. Uh, I look for opportunities where where people aren't doing it. And I think it's maybe ready for prime time and audio seemed to be ready for prime time. I wonder if, do you know of any examples of like, um, you know, by recording interviews, uh, did you, did you learn something that you would not have, you know, did, did you create something that would have otherwise been, been, uh, left out? Right. Yeah, if we had just done the live streaming, I, in fact, I remember when Associated Press um, came in and we were doing the National Press Club luncheons live for the first time. Um, it was Al Gore, actually. And so the reporter sitting there looking at my son's workstation and he goes, well, can you tell how many people are listening? I said, yeah, six. And he was really disappointed. He's like, what? Um, I said, yeah, but they're, they're on four continents. Look, this guy's in Australia. This guy's in Germany. This guy's in Japan. And he was a little more impressed at that point. If we had not done the time shifting, the record, I mean, it was obvious to me that that live was interesting and I wanted to do it. Um, we even had a 24 by 7 rock and roll station on the Internet because we actually got a BMI provisional license. And because they didn't BMI have is a, a rights organization, right? That pays yeah, songwriters yeah. royalties. Yeah. Yeah. And because they didn't know what the internet was I, I was able to basically you know demand that they give me a public radio you know streaming and so we were we were doing live streaming a rock and roll but it was very clear that was going to be a very small audience uh whereas the time shifting thing the recorded to disc let people listen to it when they want uh had a substantial effect and like i said there were hundreds of people listening to geek of the week episodes even today I'm getting hundreds of people per week listening to Geek of the right, Week. Right, because they're on the Internet Archive, right? <laughs> the, the, this stuff yeah, is all yeah. still available for folks. Thank you to the amazing people, of course, at, at the Internet Archive. Uh, so a, a little known story, I, and then I'm sorry, Andrew, I didn't mean to cut you no. off. Uh, Brewster Kale, who runs the Internet Archive, came up to me in 1996. And he said, Carl, I want to archive the web. 
And I was like, okay, well, that's pretty ambitious, even in those days. And he goes, well, do you have any hardware? And I happen to have a, a tape jukebox uh, that we use for the Securities and Exchange Commission data. And I didn't need it anymore because the SEC was online. And so I gave Brewster his first hardware um, for what ended up becoming the Internet Archives. So I, I've known Brewster for ages and ages. Uh, I love the work he does. He is an amazing story of someone dedicating his winnings from .com, where he did very well, uh, to a life of public service. And he has built something just amazing, uh, absolutely amazing, at a, a whole different scale than I operate at. I mean, this is like major league. Andrew, did you have a question? Something you oh, want to come in? Yeah, uh, no, Professor no, Andrew I, I Bottomley. Was, Carl, it's, it's interesting that you were saying right there that, you know, you're kind of most proud of the asynchronous radio, uh, the time shifted stuff that you were doing from like 93 to, and 94. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was like January 95 when you started doing the live streaming um, with the RTFM and the music uh, programming that you're talking about. Um, and funny enough, right, that's really for the rest of the 90s, um, most folks who were working in the Internet radio or, or streaming audio space were doing stuff that was live streamed. Uh, I mean, there was some programming that was like archived online for for later listening. But um, most of it until really the early 2000s, when people like Dave Weiner come along with, you know, audio blogging that became podcasting. You know, it was it was almost another decade before time shifted audio really became a thing again. Um, at least in terms of the primary sort of focus that it, it's largely become with podcasting now. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I don't know if you have anything more to say about that, but I just thought it was interesting that you made that distinction there because, uh, it, again, it was like live streaming seemed to be the thing when we talk about 90s audio on the Internet. I think most people, until they hear something like this, weren't even really aware that there was the time shifted or asynchronous audio as early as it was, of course, because that's where you started. So the live streaming thing, and and I, I had talks with many, many people about that. It's like, look, live stream your, your program, but also put it on disc. And people weren't doing that. And Dave Weiner's brilliant insight was to, you know, bring MPEG-3 and RSS and the concept of audio blogging in and show people that that made sense. Uh, he got people like Adam Curry that were actually like, you know, doing professional programming. Um, and it was kind of a right place, right time, right idea kind of thing. And so Dave, Dave kind of pushed that over the hump. But you're right. In the 90s, people were like, you know, time shifting. I, I mean, there were um, the beginning of digital video recorders were beginning to happen by the late 90s. So people were time shifting their television. Uh, but that wasn't live streaming. That was coming in over cable, being recorded to disc, and then you could watch your program later on your TV. You know, Carl, it's interesting. I, uh, I did a radio program on community radio uh, that I – ended up distributing like we do radio survivor now but through the 90s into the 2000s and it was circa about 2002 so a little ahead of the podcasting rss specification that i started posting my shows uh online because uh, again a little community radio show in in you know urbana illinois it has so much of a footprint especially because it was kind of uh it was about independent media and technology so something maybe broad interest uh and it seemed to me, gosh, uh, you know, only so many people can ever hear this Friday at 5.30 p.m. I, you know, even people who live in the area. So I, you know, why aren't people, more people using the Internet for time shifting? Uh, you know, and eventually it turned into a podcast and and, and eventually, you know, and, and, and it became syndicated because the first 
you know, community radio manager uh, in Moscow, Idaho, got a hold of me and said, hey, you know, if you could be a little more timely in getting these posted each week, not just when you feel like it, uh, we would run it on our, on our, you know, on our, uh, radio, on our radio station here in Idaho. And, and I put it up and, and, and so, and, and I had the similar thing, although I'm, I'm already, you know, at that point, 10 years, 10 years behind you. But at the time, I, I, I will have to say, I was aware of Geek of the Week. I became aware of it fairly early there, there in the 90s, working, you know, in, in, in university computer labs. And so with pretty good access to uh, internet and sun workstations, as it turned out in many cases. So, um, but it's just a little, little anecdote, you know, because I think it was, it's it's like this potentiality that was waiting to be realized, and and well, but, and, and, but, and you kind of uh, showed that that it was there, but it even took even longer before it, it it took fire. So a lot of people when they create a new service, they they create the service they want to see, mm-hmm. um, but they're not creating the service that's going to reach people. And the ones that are successful are the ones that deliver something to people that they actually want and can use. Um, and that's a lot of the, the Silicon Valley folks don't get that. They're, they're doing what they think you need rather than something you might actually want. Um, and that, that was kind of, again, with the delayed audio, it just seemed obvious to me that if I wanted to, uh, now that we had time changes, right? So, I mean, I was like in Washington, D.C. and a lot of my listeners weren't Japan you know what what am I going to do put this on at three in the morning um Mm -hmm. it just didn't make any sense so but but a lot of people didn't get that and particularly a lot of the early dot-com startups in the kind of mid to late 90s um you know they created things that they wanted that some engineer thought you might want but not something you really wanted and, and especially not something you really needed and that's something companies like google got right it's like you need to be able to search the internet better um and all of a sudden like everybody's using your service it's a lesson i learned if you can build something that gets millions of eyeballs you have a lot more credibility when you're meeting some government minister or member of congress and saying you know you ought to be doing things differently or the law ought to be different or your government you know it infrastructure sucks and it could be better um if they look at you and you're writing white papers for some think tank they're like okay thank you so much for the visit if you say listen i have five million people using my service every day that's really different. Politicians respect eyeballs. Um, they respect the fact that there's a lot of people out there that care about this. Carl Malamud, it's been uh, a great pleasure speaking with you and, and hearing about both uh, the work that you that you did back in the early in the early '90s, as well as the work you're doing today, and continue to do to uh, help you know enhance uh, public access to to what should be public information. So. Uh, folks can certainly learn more at uh, public.resource.org. Also, uh, Professor Andrew Bottomley, thanks for joining us again for this, this wide-ranging chat about uh, this early history of internet radio. It, it's, it's always fantastic to have you on. Yeah, well, no, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Eric and Paul, for inviting me. And Andrew, thank you so much for that book. You did a beautiful job documenting history. Um, that's uh, well worth a PhD, um, and I really enjoyed the book. So thanks for writing that. Oh, thank you, Carl. That's, that's a real honor to hear that coming from you. My thanks again to our guest, Carl Malamud. My thanks to Paul Reese Mendel, my co-host, for producing today's episode, as well as our uh, new co-host, Andrew Bottomley, who joined us today to interview Carl uh, because Andrew was a guest on our podcast, episode number 253, uh, just two weeks ago, talking about his book, Sound Streams, uh, Dissecting the History of Internet Radio. And uh, based on that interview, Carl uh, reached out to us on Twitter and we reached out to him to be a guest and 
And that's how this episode was made. You can listen to a much longer version of this interview, 40 extra minutes of content online at radiosurvivor.com or on the podcast, Radio Survivor, wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. You can email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, visit radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Paul Reismandel, myself, Eric Klein, Jennifer Waits, as well as Matthew Lazar, the whole Radio Survivor team, we thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>